0: I want to begin by uh, giving greetings from my own congregation, Providence Reformed Church. Uh, It's a privilege uh, to give greetings from my congregation to you all. Um, We are grateful to be part of, really, Reformation Bakersfield here in our city, where uh, four churches that come from uh, deep reformational roots and who understand how valuable it is to have a confession of faith, can join together for several times a year in terms of these big services that we have, uh, bringing in people from out of town, but then also in between times, um, you know, we as pastors will get together and have lunch, and to chat with one another, and talk with one another, and keep encouraging one another, and praying for one another, and even texting one another, uh, any number of times I'll get a text from your pastor, Josh, uh, just, and in that text there'll be a prayer for my day, for my ministry, for my week, for what I'm preaching. It's just a, a, a great level of testifying to the fact that the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, and there's a mystical, sweet communion that binds us all together. We're very, very grateful for that. Uh, This morning, it is an honor and privilege to be able to open up the Word of God to you, uh, Psalm 90. I want to read that and then uh, pray, and then we'll dive into the meat of the Word. Psalm 90. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, You may have a a more favorite version. You may have the New American Standard or the uh, New King James Version or possibly even the Nearly Inspired Version, the NIV 84. Don't go beyond 1984 with the NIV. After that, it sort of crashes and burns. Uh, but whatever your translation is, uh, open your Bible if you were this morning, even it's an electronic version, and let's uh, read Psalm 90. Uh, it's titled "A Psalm of Moses," which means this is the earliest psalm that we actually find in Scripture. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to the dust and say, "Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is passed, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long. Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Sovereign Holy Spirit, uh, unless you do your work with us right now uh, to open up our hearts and minds to understand your word further, not only to understand it, but to believe it, And further yet, to desire in our hearts to live it, obey it, follow it, and keep it. Unless you work, O Holy Spirit, with your word, we will have dull ears and blind eyes and feet that will not move a step closer to walking the path that you desire for us to live as believers. And so we pray. We ask for an abundance of your Holy Spirit right now, Father, to be upon us, testifying to us of the eternal truths which you have wrought in your word, ultimately concerning your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is our shield, defender, the author and perfecter of our faith. And it's in his name, and ultimately we pray to his glory that we pray now. Amen. I want to begin by mentioning to you two similarities I see between millennials and senior citizens. Now, I'm looking out over you, and I think most of you are millennials. A few of you are senior citizens like I am. So what's the similarity? I've noticed that we often have much the same question about life right now, and that is, what am I supposed to do with my life? Millennials, you're supposed to be tied into your life already, knowing what you're doing. Millennials are asking the question, what am I supposed to do with my life? And then senior citizens with retirement already in place or retirement looming ahead of them will basically be saying, what am I supposed to do with the rest of my life? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? These things are common. I mean, even teenagers are wondering, what is life all about? What am I supposed to do with my life? So the struggle to understand our purpose in life is actually a fairly common element of the human condition. How should we live? What should we live for? What's the purpose of life? But as Christians, uh, this shouldn't be really much of a mystery to us. It shouldn't be any kind of real issue. When we frame the question biblically, we're asking ourselves, how should we live our lives in such a manner that we will best glorify God? In a very practical sense, we can think about what uh, Ephesians 5.16 says. And thinking of this from the New King James translation, where the apostle says, Redeem the time, for the days are evil. So we should be asking ourselves the question, what does it mean, how shall we live our lives to glorify God to the highest? How should we redeem our time, recognizing that the days are evil? Now, this has particular relevance to me as a Christian and as a pastor, because I'm closing in on seven Full decades of life. Uh, to use a sports metaphor, I'm in the fourth quarter. <laughs> I don't quite know when the two-minute drill is going to be, and I don't quite know when the end of the game is going to come, but I'm clearly in the fourth quarter. Some of you are in the second, well, few, few, maybe a few, are in the first quarter. Some of you are in the second, some in the third quarter. But when we recognize that the game is ahead of us, second or third quarter, when you recognize not much of the game is ahead of us, fourth quarter, we ought to be asking ourselves seriously, how do I redeem the time that God has granted to me that I have left in order to glorify God the most, in the context of recognizing with brutal honesty, uh, the days are evil. The apostle Paul reflects this in Ephesians 5.16. Moses reflects this in his psalm, Psalm 90. Uh, this is a psalm that in every way points to time. Time in comparison with eternity. Time in comparison to the rather shortevity, not longevity, the shortevity of human life. Uh, the key verse in this psalm is verse 12, where Moses says to God, "So teach us to number our days." here's where I do like the NIV translation. "Teach us to number our days rightly that we may get or gain a heart of God." Wisdom, So, Lord, it's a prayer. Teach us to number our days in a manner that will enable us to live with wisdom before you, to live with wisdom in such a way that ultimately we as believers are going to give God all the glory. It's this idea about time that I want to develop as we consider Psalm 90 this morning in large measure to answer the question, how are we supposed to live but we need to first consider the context. Uh, What's really going on as Moses begins and writes this psalm? So I'm thinking about verses one to 11, first of all. The first two verses are like an introduction. Uh, Moses gives recognition to God. God is the creator of everything, and God is the everlasting God, the God who is eternal. So there Moses is putting what he's going to write in the context of the recognition of what we find in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created everything, and God is before all things. God is the eternal, everlasting God, God who's created all things. Then verses 3 through 11, Moses is going to describe how the world is now, as it was in his day, between God and the human race since the sin of Adam in the garden. In other words, we find in verses 3 through 11 very strong echoes of Genesis chapter 3, and really very strong echoes of Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the flood. This is the background of Moses' thinking as he writes these verses. In other words, with respect to uh, the echoes in Genesis 3, Moses will say, look, We recognize the eternal God has created man, the head of the human race. Adam sins. The entire human race sins with Adam and falls with Adam in his first transgression. This is why we live in a world that is under God's wrath and curse. This is why every human being has the earthly destiny described in Genesis 3.19, where God says to Adam, From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So Moses echoes that in verse 3. He says to God, you return man to dust, and say, return, O children of, by the way, uh, some translations are bold enough to say, just like it says in the Hebrew, return, O children of Adam. Further, Moses testifies that death reigns over every human being, not only because of Adam's sins, but because of our own sins. Our iniquities are in the plain sight of God. This is verse 8. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Verse 9 tells us that death comes to every human being because of the wrath, and implied in this, because of the wrath and curse of God. Right? That's what we've learned from Genesis chapter 3. Instead of immortality... Instead of eternal life in this world, the world that God has made, verse 10 says, we are given but a few years, Uh, 70, uh, typically normal, Uh, 80, if we're granted more strength. Regardless, it's the, the nature of life that all of our days are filled with toil and trouble. These troubled days are soon gone by and we fly away so very fast. Now, with respect to this wrath of God, think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul places the context of the gospel message he's going to present in light of, with echoes of, Genesis chapter 3. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth suppress the truth, which illuminates what Moses is going to write in verse 11. Who considers, Moses says, in light of what he has just said in verses 3 through 10, death, life not being eternal, mortality, God's anger. In light of that, Moses says, but who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. Who responds, who reacts to this reality of the wrath of God in a way that engenders in them a respect and reverence and fear of God? In other words, even with the evidence of of God's wrath all around us, 100% mortality rate of every human being, and 100% rate of toil and trouble in life, Do people really consider the wrath and curse of God in this fallen world? Do they really give proper reverence to God? Well, Moses is asking a rhetorical question because living with a generation of Israelites who came out of Egypt, that generation that did not make it into the promised land, he could easily say, no. Human beings are willingly blind to God's judgment, and God's wrath. But for believers, in light of all this, given that our time in this world is so limited uh, compared with the days of an everlasting God, how should we, how should we who belong to God actually live our lives? How should we spend the very precious time that God has given to us? So that's what, da- that's what Moses is addressing here in this psalm. There's a big truth that we should label this psalm with. It's basically stated this way. When we see and understand that the world exists under the wrath and anger of God, our calling as believers is to establish the purpose, the direction, the intentions of our lives according to the wisdom that honors and glorifies God. That's what we find in verse 12, and that's what the surrounding verses support and lead us to understand. We live in an evil world. We're supposed to redeem the time. And to do that's going to take the wisdom of God. It's going to take a number of things that we need in order to, as verse 12 says, be taught to number our days in a right manner so that we may gain hearts of God wisdom. Now I see Moses presenting lots of different ideas here, but the main ideas can be stated in in three basic convictions, I believe, that we need. Uh, The first conviction would be something like this. Measure your time against God's eternity. Measure the time that God has given you against the eternality, and the eternal nature of God. Secondly, aim for this thing called fearing the Lord. Aim your life toward fearing God. And then thirdly, seek the Lord, and seek the Lord always. Seek the Lord at all times. Okay? Now, first thing. First conviction, to measure our time in light of eternity. Now, Moses isn't calling for us to do some kind of actuarial thing, you know, Uh, calculating how much time we have left. How likely is it we're going to live to be 70 or 80 or 90? Now, I've actually done that. And this will be news to my wife. She doesn't know that I've done this. But I I actually went into the actuarials this past week and realized that... um, I have a 90%, greater than 90% chance to reach the age of 70. It's only three years away. (laughs) That's strange. I have 17-year-old thoughts in a 67-year-old body. This is weird. There's a greater than 60% chance that I'm going to reach 80. There's a slightly greater than 20% chance I'll make it to 90 And approximately a 3% chance I might make it to be 100. Interesting. But that's not what Moses is concerned about here. He's really not concerned about your investments, your life insurance, your pension plan. He's not concerned about any of those things. He's concerned about things that are far more significant and profound. He's saying we need to measure the significance and the importance of our days in light of God's eternal existence. And in light of the reality that exists in this world now that's under God's wrath and curse. In light of the fact that God has set our exact times in this world. Because he's the one who's going to say, return, O children of Adam, to dust. God sets the exact limits of our physical lives before we become dust once again. So we can easily say, uh, our times are in God's hands. Hands. So Moses is saying, we need God to enable us to number our days rightly, to measure our time. That means clearly don't measure your life, don't consider your time in this world according to the philosophies of the world. Even no matter how astute and attractive those worldly philosophies might be, there I'm thinking of the popularity of Jordan Peterson among um, Bible-believing Christians. He says a lot of great stuff. But it's not the wisdom of God, ultimately. Uh, we have to remember that the apostle Paul himself said, If the world in its wisdom did not come to know God then the implication is the world and its wisdom has not arrived at the point of enabling you to live your life in accordance with the wisdom that pleases God. Worldly wisdom will never get you there. You might draw an insight here and there. Worldly wisdom will not get you there. You need to ground yourself in the word of God. Now, the the wisdom of the world is much like... um, what a Native American uh, first said when he heard about daylight saving time. Here's what he said. Well, it's just like a white man to think that you can cut the foot off the bottom of a blanket and sew it to the top of the blanket and think you now have a longer blanket. In some sense, the best of worldly wisdom is just like that. Moses points to the necessity of God teaching us how to measure our days. Measured in light of the realities that we find given to us in Scripture. The reality that all of us are going to face eternity. The reality that life in this world is truly under God's wrath. No other standard but God's. No other approach but that which God reveals to us. God is the everlasting God. And as Moses begins this psalm, from generation to generation to generation, the dwelling place of God's people has been in God. So don't go out the door of his dwelling place, to find wisdom anywhere else. We must measure our lives, the days of our lives, in light of the living God who has created us and for whom a thousand days are like yesterday in his sight. Right? Okay. What, what does this mean practically? Uh, how does this direct us in a practical sense? The New Testament and the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2.10, gives us perhaps the best understanding, the best approach to measuring our lives in light of eternity. Ephesians 2.10, very significant verse with respect to this question, how do we redeem the time because the days are evil? The Apostle Paul there says, we are God's workmanship, We are the workmanship of the eternal and everlasting God created in Christ Jesus. That is created into a saving union with the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord unto good works. Good works, good works to be done in this life as opposed to the good works of the life to come which God has prepared in advance or beforehand that we should walk in them. One of the most powerful verses in all of the New Testament to teach us how to redeem the time for the days are evil, one of the most powerful verses to tell us what we need to know about ourselves in light of the everlasting God and his purposes for us in this life. To measure life by eternity means this. Make every day count. Make every day count by doing the good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. That means every day, look at the day and say, the question before me is, how am I supposed to redeem the time? And the answer is this, O Lord God, enable me this day to do the good that I ought to do this day, Enable me to do the good that I'm able to do this day. And enable me to do the good which you have preordained, decided beforehand, planned beforehand that I should do this day. Give me a heart to want to do this day the good that you want me to do. Give me the eyes to see it, the will to do it, and all of the necessary grace to pull it off. That's how we redeem our days, because the days are evil. And that's how we begin to number our days rightly and to find a heart of wisdom. Now, the second conviction that Moses presents to us uh, is about the fear of the Lord. We are to aim at nothing less than the fear of God, the fear of the Lord. That's what a heart of wisdom is all about. we know this from what Moses has said, uh, going back to, for instance, verse 11, the end of verse 11. Remember, Moses has "Ask in that verse, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, I want to think about the context in which Moses is writing Psalm 90. It's Charles Spurgeon who really helped me to see this and to understand this clearly. Moses, he says, lived in the context of daily funerals. So I started thinking about this. Given the size of the nation at the time of the Exodus, uh, given the fact that the generation who left Egypt, all of those 20 and older, never made it into the promised land. They all died in the wilderness. given the fact that the only ones who actually lived to make the promised land were those below 20 and their children during the 40 years. Given all that, given the fact that we, we have estimates that there were probably a million to a million and a half coming out of Egypt, and maybe more, 600,000 men, which double that for women, that's 1.2 million, and then maybe add you know, five to six children, a large number came out of Egypt. So even by conservative estimates, over that 40-year period of time, as many as a million adults died in the wilderness. Now, divide that one million by 40 years, divide that 40 years by 365 days per year, And you wind up with about 68 funerals and 68 burials every single day. As Spurgeon further notes, Moses saw men dying all around him. The visual spectacle must have been overwhelming. But even so, Moses says in verse 11, "Uh, who considers the power of your anger? And remember, the power of the anger of God according to Moses was in fact the mortality of human beings. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, even with this incredible spectacle of death every day, were the sons of Israel gaining hearts of wisdom? Were they learning to fear the Lord? It's biblical truth that a heart of wisdom must begin with a proper fear of the Lord. So that's how verse 12 and verse 11 are connected. Solomon describes this in the book of Proverbs in chapter 2, uh, quickly looking at verses 2 through 5, where he says, make your ear attentive to wisdom and essentially accline your hearts to understanding Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, the center of all that Solomon has to say is that true wisdom and knowledge of God involves this matter of fearing the Lord. Now, there are those who want to limit this fearing of the Lord to nothing more than something like the deepest respect and awe towards God. Well, it's all of that. But fearing the Lord is more than that. And we know because that's what Jesus taught us about fearing the Lord. Uh, Listen to what he says to his disciples. This is in the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, beginning at verse 26. He's talking to his disciples and he says, so have no fear of them, meaning fear of men. And in that context, he doesn't mean respect. He means fear. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark say in the light and what you hear whispered proclaim on the housetops. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, verses 32, 33, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, Jesus is saying that we need to fear God, not fear men. The disciples themselves are going to face the reality of this again and again, because 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. The only one who wasn't was the Apostle John. They faced the temptation to fear men frequently, uh, to fear what their human enemies could do to them. But Jesus told them it wasn't men they were to fear, but only God. And his point was this, you ought to fear God so much More than ever you would fear men, even those who are going to put you to death, because the reality of the teaching of Jesus is this. To deny Christ out of a fear of man means we have not yet learned to fear God. If we do not fear God, we do not have wisdom. If we do not have wisdom, we do not have the knowledge of God. If we do not have the knowledge of God, then we are lost human beings. We would still be in our sins. We would not yet be saved. Now, I know stating it this way, for us as American Christians, this sounds so very strict, it sounds so very hard, we almost ask, where's the grace? But every month I receive the newsletter from Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, In that newsletter... Every month, I read stories of how Christians are persecuted. I read what Christians in other parts of the world face from human beings who have the power and the intention to persecute and murder them. Again and again, the pattern goes like this under interrogation. You deny Jesus, you deny your faith, and this persecution and this torture will stop. You don't deny Jesus, you don't deny the Christian faith, and you will die. Jesus said to fear God more than those who persecute. Fear God more than those who can kill the body. Now, what we ought to know is this. Even if you and I cannot fathom clearly, what does it mean for us to really fear God like this? We do have thousands and thousands of brothers and sisters who every day are facing this in the world in which they live. They're facing the worst sorts of human evil, but they are fearing God more than they are fearing men. You have brothers and sisters who die every day for their faith. Even as the voice of the martyrs will present stories of 13-year-olds and 14-year-olds and 15-year-olds girls who would prefer to die for Christ than to deny his name. But it's also a comfort to know that God has made a tremendous promise. Jesus made a tremendous promise, a special measure of his presence in the day of such persecution and in those times in which we might be tempted to deny him. This is what he says in Matthew 10, verses 17 to 22. So it's earlier than the passage I read from Matthew. Beware of men for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake." but the one who endures to the end will be saved. God expects us to fear him more than we fear human beings, more than we fear what they can do to us. But he also promises that in that time, the Holy Spirit will come and be with us and will even speak through us to those who persecute us. So, in uh, the latter part of uh, 2016, Uh, my attention was drawn to the story in the Voice of the Martyrs Newsletter about this woman named Shawnee. Um, Her husband was a a pastor leader in an underground church in a Muslim-controlled country. One day, um, unexpectedly, though expectedly, in that kind of a situation, her husband completely disappears. Three months go by. The, The authorities deny that they have any knowledge of his abduction, any knowledge of his whereabouts. And she's living alone. She's living in fear. She's living in fear of what's going to happen next, uh, what might happen to her. Now, she knows that her husband is strong. Uh, She knows that she isn't. Uh, She knows that her husband would endure torture, that her husband would never divulge the names of the other Christians in their community. He would never give up his faith. But she's fearful, tremendously fearful that she's not strong, not strong like that at all. So one night she prays this, Dear God, please don't allow them to find me. I can't handle torture. I can't handle a jail cell. Um, You said you wouldn't give us more than we can handle, so please make it so that they don't come to arrest me. Not strong like my husband. I can't handle torture. If I'm tortured, I'll probably give up everybody's name, And I'll probably even deny you and deny the faith. She prays that she goes to sleep. 6 a.m. the next morning, she's awakened by someone banging on the door. She looks out her window, two police cars in front of her home. They see her through the window. They say, do you want us to come up there and get you? Or are you going to come down? She says, wait, I'll come right down. But as she's getting ready to open the door, she's fighting with God. And this is her prayer, God, I told you that I can't handle arrest and torture. And this is what happens? Whatever happens now, God, it's your fault. So the police take Shawnee to this local jail. It's filthy, smells like a sewer. Uh, She grew up in a wealthy family, so this is way beyond any kind of comfort zone. She's never been in a place like that. She thinks, how can I even sleep here? In the middle of the night, Having been taken there early in the morning, so in the middle of the night, probably 12 to 15 hours later, the guards pull her out of the room, her cell, and take her to the interrogation room. The interrogator across from the table looks extremely angry. And he says, why do you, do, why do you evangelize? Why do you talk about Jesus to Muslims? Why do you do, what do you want from these people, you and your husband? Don't you know this is illegal? You are not permitted to evangelize. Uh, the only thing Shawnee can think of at the moment is, Dear God, Lord. Then suddenly she feels the Lord's presence. Uh, she looks up at her interrogator and begins to speak. You know what she says? I have a right to evangelize. And I'm happy that I'm evangelizing. We were supposed to evangelize. This is a commandment from Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to hear this good news you need to hear this good news. God sent me here to tell you about Jesus. You are a poor man. I feel badly for you. You don't have peace. You don't have joy. You don't have hope. You don't even know why you are alive. The only way to truth is Jesus Christ. You are an interrogator, but one day You are going to stand before the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ, and he is going to examine you. Without him, there is no hope for you. And Jesus is going to ask you, why did you do this to my servants? Now, the interrogator is shocked. He responds, "Okay, I see. I know exactly who you are now. Uh, Now your punishment has just been increased. You are really going to get it now. Back to your cell, I will we'll deal with you tomorrow. So Shawnee's escorted back to her cell, and she gets in. She prays, Lord, oh Lord, what did I do? How could I have been so stupid? Why did I say all that stuff? And she thinks further. Um, she's going to apologize to the interrogator the next day. Uh, she's going to take everything back that she said. Uh, She decides she's going to say whatever he wants her to say. Following night, same pattern. Guards come to the cell. They drag her into the interrogation room. She's got her plan in place. But despite her plan, she feels again the presence of the Holy Spirit. Again, she says the same thing that night with the interrogator. The third night, the Holy Spirit pattern repeats itself again. She enters the interrogation room. She's intent upon apologizing. But instead, the spirit enables her and motivates her to share the gospel badly. So after the third interrogation, three nights of this, she goes back to room. She has not slept in three days. And she just thinks, if only my mind would go to sleep, if only I could just fall asleep and get some rest. Middle of the night, she hears a knock. Okay. She's back in her cell. She hears a knock. To her surprise, it's not the guard. It's the interrogator. Let me come in, he says. She's terrified. Is he coming back to beat her? Is this the more punishment that he's threatened? Don't worry, says the interrogator. I will not harm you. I want to ask you a favor. Would you pray for me tonight? So the interrogator enters her cell. With tears, And he says, Did you know that you are an angel of God? Did you know that God sent you here at this particular time in my life? The past three days I have been going through hell. How did you know my life is so crazy, so messed up? I have tried everything in my religion that I could in order to be happy. I learned today that the only Savior is Jesus Christ. When you were talking in the interrogation room, that wasn't really you. I saw myself in God's presence. Please help me to be saved. He stays in her room, herself, for three hours. Before he leaves, he places his faith in Christ. He orders her release He orders her husband's release on the secret condition that they agree to meet with him in order to disciple him. He even gives them advice on how to do their secret gospel work more safely and securely. You see, Jesus fully requires that we would fear God more than fear men. But he also promised that what God would require of us in those particular times, God will also supply for us in his presence, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. So a frightened woman who thought she might deny her faith and deny Christ by the power of the Spirit of God leads an enemy of the gospel to saving faith in the Savior. When we resolve to fear God and to fear nothing else. When we aim our lives toward fearing God above all. God, we can trust God to give us the grace to enable us to do so. Why? Because you and I are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. Unto even these kinds of good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the third conviction: uh, Moses is going to conclude this psalm by pointing us to the Lord. We must seek the Lord at all times. That's what we see in verses thirteen through seventeen. It's, it's we see it in the way that Moses prays here. His example shows us what it means to seek the Lord. So, you look at verse thirteen; he's praying, "Return, Lord." How long? Have pity on your servants. Uh, The how long is a very strong emotional appeal. I like that. I like the fact that that my prayers before God can be pretty emotional. And I can say, God, it just seems like a very, very long time since I've had some kind of demonstration of your presence or your power, your grace, or your mercy, or your help. Moses is telling us, We can pray this way because in praying this way, we are seeking the Lord. If life is toil and trouble, we must seek the Lord constantly. We need the grace of his sustaining grace in our lives. Verse 14, Moses prays that God would satisfy us each morning with his steadfast love. Now, that's an incredible prayer. It's it's a prayer for a certain kind of balance. You know, God make us supremely satisfied uh, that your unbreakable love, your covenant love, your steadfast love, that love that you had set upon us, that you would satisfy us every morning with that love, with the recognition of that love, with the experience of that love, with the trust and faith in that love. And then he goes on to verse 15, uh, where he specifically is asking for the balance. God, grant us as many days of gladness, as it were, to match all the days that you've afflicted us. We, we really want to see life fair. On the horizontal level, life isn't fair. Before God, between you and God, yeah, you don't want fairness. You want mercy. You want God's kindness. But Moses is telling us one of the ways in which God can be very, very kind to us is to give us a kind of balance. That is a balance between all the days of toil and affliction and suffering with days of gladness. But that doesn't mean you're going to find that gladness outside of the wisdom that He's given to us. You're not going to find that gladness in that next new thing you buy. Retail therapy doesn't work. Ask my wife. Lots of experience. And no, the gladness we ultimately need is only going to be found when God blesses us in Christ. When we experience what he's designed for us to experience in our relationship with Christ, are we going to find those days of gladness? And then verses 16 and 17, I want us to connect those verses more directly to Ephesians 2.10. In verse 16, he prays this. Remember, he is seeking the Lord. He says, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Now, we know that the greatness of the work of God is shown ultimately and preeminently and finally and necessarily and sufficiently in everything he's done in the person and work of his son. We know that God has demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We know that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So it is in Christ that we see the fullness of God's works demonstrated. It is in Christ that we see the power of God toward us who believe. And in Christ, we are his workmanship. We are the very work of God in Christ, his grace, the glorious power he shows to us in Christ and in us by his work of the spirit in our lives. So we come to verse 17 then, and this is the final part of Moses' prayer, and it's like a benediction. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands, yes, establish the work of our hands The work of our hands are those good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do them, that we should walk in them. So this is what it means to seek the Lord at all times. We need God to establish his work in us, to establish those works that he's given for us to do, what we're called to do in a world that is under his wrath and curse. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, nothing at all. So to sum it up, we can say this. The prayer of Moses, this revelation of the word of God, concerns the world as it really is. The world exists under the wrath and curse of God. Uh, the days are evil. But our calling is to establish the purpose of our days according to the wisdom that honors and glorifies God. Therefore, measure your days in light of eternity. Seek nothing less than fearing the Lord. Seek him at all times. For through Jesus, the Son of God, you are God's workmanship created into a wonderful union with your Savior for good works, which God has prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Yea, Lord, may your favor rest upon us. Establish the work of your hands in us, in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, our prayer as Moses prayed, uh, teach us to number our days that we may get hearts of wisdom. Uh, Here we find another way of saying that what is our chief end uh, but to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Teach us, Lord, to redeem the time for the days are evil. Teach us to fear you. Teach us to love you. Teach us to serve you. Grant us all of these great things